Our scripture reading for today comes from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, you can go ahead and be seated. <coughs> Sorry, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, we are continuing our series on the kingdom of heaven, breaking into our city. Uh, it's, it's actually a very simple question that we're asking. What would it look like for us to live out Jesus' prayer, the prayer that he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What would that look like for us as a church family, for us as a people living in this city to be a part of, to, to pray and to live out the kingdom of God coming here in D.C. as it is in heaven? Right? And we, we understand before we really jump into the text, we understand a few things, first of all. Uh, as a church, we, we understand and we believe that ultimately the kingdom of heaven is where the king is. And so the kingdom of heaven will not be in its fullness until the king is here. And so we eagerly await the return of Jesus. And at the same time, God has called us to bring light into dark. Jesus taught us to pray a very specific way, not only because he wanted us to learn how to pray, but because he wanted us to see his heart. The Lord's Prayer reveals the heart of Jesus. And so we've been walking through the Lord's Prayer because I believe we've been walking through what it is Jesus wants us to be as a church. And so we said the prayer, the main thesis, the main point, the main thing that God is praying, that Jesus is praying in Matthew 6 is... Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in the rest of the prayer, Jesus is praying these things, but also explaining to us what that looks like. What does it actually look like 
for the kingdom to come and for God's will to be done. And, and he broke it down, and we broke it down into three parts. Jesus prayed, give us this day our daily bread. And so we've spent the last couple weeks talking about how when the fullness of the kingdom comes, the needs of people are met. And so if we're going to be a kingdom people, if we're going to be about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, and not the kingdom of ourselves or of even Union Church, then that means that we must be deeply concerned with the needs of the people around us. It is impossible to follow Jesus and to not care for the broken and the hungry and the poor and the needy and the marginalized. You're just not following him if you, if you have no concern for those things. And, and we spent the last couple weeks, I think, proving that, proving how close to the heart of Jesus hunger, homelessness, poverty are. And then Jesus goes on, and this is where we are now in our series. The next thing that Jesus says, he prays, is forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us or who have sinned against us. And so Jesus moves from the physical to the relational, spiritual Right? And, and remember, we said that's, a, that's actually a blueprint. You, you can share the gospel with anybody, but you, you can't really, it's, it's not effective. It's, it's kind of backwards to see somebody who's starving and to just start talking to them about theology. Right? In the same way that we recognize through statistics and in our school systems that hungry kids don't learn, in the same way, hungry people don't have ears to hear until you feed them. So we meet needs, and then we move into this next part, and Jesus says, forgive us our sins, our debts, our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, sin against us, who have debts against, or against whom we have debt, they owe us, right? And there's this relational aspect to it. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks actually talking about this idea of relationship. So we say sin Sin, and we'll talk about what that is a little bit today, sin breaks our relationship with everything. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with, with the earth, with creation. And so Jesus is saying, forgive us as we forgive. And all of a sudden, we're starting to see there's this relational component to the kingdom of God. And I'll say it like this. It's really simple. In the fullness of the kingdom of God, there is restored, redeemed, and renewed relationships. In the fullness of the kingdom of God, there are no broken relationships. And so we work towards that end. And, and the first thing that Jesus says is, forgive us. And so and we're looking at Psalm 41 because we want to look at what, is, what does it look like? What does that look like for us to cry out, forgive us, O God? So if you will, pray with me. And then we're just going to hop real, real quick into the text. And we're going to look at what the psalmist has to say and what the Lord has to teach us through the psalmist. So, so again, let's, let's pray that the Lord would meet us this morning. God, your word is true and it is good and it is, it is profitable that we might be adequate, equipped, perfect, ready for good works, to serve you, to know you. It's breathed by your spirit. And so, God, even as we read the words of a sinful man, 
we, we, we are in the presence of and joined by your Spirit. And so, because it is breathed by your Spirit, we ask that you would send your Spirit now to show us what you have for us. And God, may the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we, we come to Psalm 51, what we're talking about is what does it look like to be forgiven? Or prior to that, what does it look like to actually ask for forgiveness? Right? We could be talk, in, in a sense, we could be talking about what is the heart of repentance. Uh, there are a lot of ways you could call this. I love this psalm. I come back to this psalm a lot because I find myself broken in sin a lot. Right? And, and sometimes not even really that broken by it. And I have to come and look at David and, and see the heart of, of repentance anew. And so I want us to, to just walk through this text. Now, <clears throat> when you read some the Psalms, obviously, or maybe not obviously, uh, the verses, like the chapters and the numbers, like those weren't in there in the beginning, right? Like if you go back to the manuscript, like Paul didn't write letters and he wasn't like, Chapter 1, to my friends in Ephesus, verse 2, right? Like, that wasn't his thing. Uh, he just wrote a letter like you would write a letter, right? It'd be weird if you divided up your letter. But because people want to study and learn the Scriptures and because we want to reference Scripture references itself, we've divided it into chapter and verse just for ease, right? Memorization and study, ease. Those aren't in there. And also, depending on what Bible you have, there may be like bold headers. Like, this one says, created me a clean heart. Oh, God, right? That's just them telling you what the psalm is about. However, right beneath it, you see this, like, prescript. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's actually there, right? Like, if you read the manuscripts, that's there. So we need to understand that that's a part of the psalm. And it's really important to understand because this isn't some random cry for forgiveness from David. This has context, right? It has kind of wild, like, R-rated context that we need to talk about and understand before, before we really understand, like, the depth of what David is talking about and the perplexities of what David is talking about because it's odd. Like, this is weird, and you'll see why. So it says, this is the Psalm of David after Nathan the prophet uh, went to him and spoke to him after he had his affair with Bathsheba. So we need to give this psalm some context, and I'll tell you the story as quickly. And as um, I have a nine and a six-year-old here, so so as nine and six-year-old as I can, right? David's king, and, and when I say king, like the king. If you talk to Jews or Israel or whatever, you, you talk about like who is the king of Israel to this day? Like David is the great king. David is the one whose throne we're looking to be restored, right? Uh, <clears throat> not as Christians, and we'll explain that in a little bit. But David is the king. And at the time, he's the most powerful man in the land. And David, uh, he's in his kingdom, his, his, his uh, castle, his palace, whatever. He's, he's walking around and he sees a woman, Bathsheba. She's bathing in the river, right? And so before, before we sort of like cast any sort of ill on Bathsheba, like that's what you did. That's what you did. But David sees her bathing, and David is intrigued. 
more than intrigued, David's heart is lustful. And so David goes to Bathsheba and he, he and Bathsheba know each other. Right? Like that's actually, I think, what the Bible says. Like, he knew her. So we're going to go with the biblical term. So he knows her. Right? But there are a few problems with this. Right? The first is that David himself is married with children. The second is that Bathsheba is married. And Bathsheba is married to a man who's actually a soldier uh, in the army of Israel out at war. So he's at war. David and Bathsheba know each other. And then Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And David has a dilemma because now he cannot hide his sin. And so he comes up with a plan, a strategy. He says, I'm going to take Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. I'm going to call him back from the battle. I'm going to give him like furlough. I'm going to give him home leave. And what's going to happen, he's going to come for a few days. He's going to be home with his wife. And he and his wife will be married in his home leave, and then he'll go back to the battle, and they'll assume that, that the baby was just a product of this, this furlough. But Uriah is a noble and valiant man, and he will not go home. He's confused. My brothers are at war. Why are you calling me back here? And so he actually sleeps at the foot of the palace, like at the gates of the palace. Like, this is weird stuff. Like, I will not sleep at home with my wife because my brothers in arms are dying. Maybe it's not weird stuff. I've never been in the military. Maybe military dudes know what, what this is like. I, I don't know. Um, but he does it. And so, <laughs> yeah. see, it's, it's even a little weirder, right? Like, see, see? And so, because of this, David's plan to cover his sin is actually foiled. Because not only does he not, like, um, enjoy his wife, he doesn't even sleep in his house. So there's no way of even saying, oh yeah, that was it for the, for the masses, for the public. He's sleeping in a public place. And so David now, his back is against the wall. His sin is going to be found out. He's trying to hide it. This happens. We hide our sin. We lie. We hide our sin. Um, Shakespeare was right. Like we, we weave, weave tangled webs. And David is trying to hide and he's just digging himself further and further in his sin, and he comes up with this plan. He says, all right, we're going to send Uriah back to the battle. And what we're going to do is we're going to tell the commanders of the army to tell everybody except Uriah to go to the front lines, and when they give a certain command, to retreat back. And so Uriah is going to be like, like 300 in it by himself against the armies, except it's not a movie or a graphic novel, right? And so, so they do that. They send the soldiers up to the front line. The commanders call out. Everybody except for Uriah, Uriah retreats, and he's sitting there, and what you would expect to happen when you go one against a whole army happens. He is killed. So David essentially has Uriah murdered so that he can then marry Bathsheba and remarkably, they have a son named Solomon. So, so David does this thing, and he thinks he's gotten away with it, but God loves David too much. He loves him too much to let him get away with this sin. So he sends the prophet Nathan, who tells him a story. 
tells him a story about a man who had a lot of sheep and he was a neighbor to a man who had only one sheep. And the man who had a lot of sheep used his power to take the neighbor's one sheep. And David was furious. How dare he abuse his power? How dare he be greedy? How dare he steal and take what isn't his? How dare he murder? And Nathan's like, you are that man, right? Like, spoiler, it's you. Right? And, and so David's rocked by this, right? All this rage, this righteous rage that he feels towards this man, he now recognizes is rightly pointed, directed at him. He's broken by his sin. He's broken with godly grief. And he writes this song. He writes this song. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. See, before we even like really hop in, hop into this text, sometimes I think that we have like this vague understanding um, of our sinfulness, but we try and ignore our actual like sin. And Spurgeon said this, if, you're, uh, if your sin is small, then your Savior is small. But if your sin is big, then so will your Savior be. And see, David isn't coming here with like, oh, God, forgive me of my sins. That was my prayer from like 8 to 28, you know. Like, God, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Forgive me for my sins, right? Like, just kind of a coverall. But I, I couldn't actually name one sin, which was problematic because I'm a sinner, right? Like, I'm not perfect. But David here isn't, this isn't some vague, like, have mercy on me, oh, God, because, you know, you say I'm a sinner, and so I have to believe you, Right? <laughs> He's actually got a sin. He's, he's like, I, I murdered a man because I had adul- committed adultery with his wife and cheated on my wife. And, and not only did I murder a man, I had innocent men do it. Right? Like, David is thinking about something very specific. And so he goes on and he writes. And so we're going to see some points about repentance in here that is so necessary if we're going to ask and say, forgive me, oh God. So the first thing that we're going to see is like, you actually, uh, so four things. One is kind of an intro-ish, right? Fourth, so the first thing you have to see is that you actually, you're sinful. Like you have sin, right? When Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done, your earth is it is in heaven, gives us day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, right? He's, he's teaching everyone to pray that way. So the assumption there that Jesus is making is that everyone has need to pray this. If you say, all right, well, sin is just one of those words that the church throws around, and it kind of is, right? We just throw it around loosely, and a lot of times what we mean is sin is you, not really me, right? Sin is this, not that, right? What we forget is how, how Paul in Romans 1 describes sin and how much it actually looks like the first sin that we see in Genesis 3. Paul says sin is exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Right? So what's the truth of God and what's that lie that we exchange it for? Well, you go back to Genesis 3 and the serpent says to Eve, God knows that when you eat this, you will be like him. Right? And so what Eve's trading, the truth is we are not God. We, he is God. He is creator. We are creation. We need that order in order to thrive, to flourish. He is God. We are not. And the lie is, no, I can be my own God. 
I can be God. And that lie manifests itself in murder and greed and lust and adultery and, and all of these things. These are manifestations of our sin, but ultimately they all come back to the same thing. Idolatry, putting something else before God. And the thing is, more often than not, you or me. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. And David says, we need mercy because of that until you acknowledge that you are actually in desperate need of mercy from God. You will never ask forgiveness. It will always either just be lip service or actually just kind of bitterness and anger towards it. Right? If you think you have it together, why do you need help? But when you admit, just for a second, that even if you were to throw out the Bible and you were just to go by the, own, the law that you've written in your heart of what's right and wrong, what's good and true, and what's not good, what's, what's false, that day in and day out, you don't even live up to your standards. Like, if you were honest, you don't even live up to the law that you've written in your heart. I don't. You are desperately in need of mercy. Have mercy on me, O oh God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Right? And so here's what we begin to see then about our sin, about our transgressions. The first thing that David shows us is that our sin is primarily against God. It's primarily vertical, not horizontal. Listen to verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Uh, I took a class uh, with, a, with a professor named Don Carson, and he's a Canadian guy, and he's got some like British-Canadian tendencies. And he's like, when you first read this verse, this is what he said, it seemed like utter tosh, which I just, I, I, I like that. I don't even know, like that might not be appropriate to say from pulpit, but like... <laughs> He was in seminary, so I assume so. I just like that. Like, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. When you read that, against you and you alone have I sinned, you're like, uh, David, you used your, and, and, and realize this. Like, this is something I've just realized in reading this story recently in light of the context. David was king. He had all the power in the world. Bathsheba was the wife, a woman in the ancient Near East, the wife of a soldier, she had little to no power. So David used all of his power on someone who was powerless. So we like to think, oh, David and Bathsheba are on the same plane. No. David sins against Bathsheba. Then he's sinning against his wife and his children. He's sinning against Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, and then has him murdered, at the, or Bathsheba's husband, right? Then has him murdered through the vehicle of the entire army. He sinned against the army, who are agents of the state, which means he's actually, like, it would be easier for David to name who he hadn't sinned against, right, than to say this. But David says, no, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words 
and blameless in your judgment. And there you begin to see that David is not denying the, the horizontal sin, but he's saying at the end of the day, we stand judged. This is what Jesus says. I didn't come to condemn the world because the world was condemned already on its own. And David is saying, I've made that condemnation justified because of this thing that I've done to them. What he's saying is that God is the judge ultimately and that God is our father ultimately. And so when, he's, when I say that our sin primarily, what I ought to say is that first and foremost, our sin is vertical, not horizontal. And to kind of further that point, I want you to understand that when you sin against a person, you are not just sinning against them. You are necessarily sinning against God because they are created in the image of God. So what you do to another person, whether you steal that person on the internet, whether you steal from that person in real life, whether you lie about them, gossip about them, abuse your power over them, you are doing that to the image of God, which means you are sinning against God himself. David is saying all of these things are sin against you, and if I do not acknowledge that first, I will never understand the gravity of my sin against another. Why is it that as a culture we treat violence against women so lightly? It's because we still do not acknowledge in its fullness the biblical truth that male and female were created after the image of God. And if you, if you look at a victim of, of those sorts of crimes and you, and you fail to see the image of God, you will always find ways to justify the crime. She was bathing, right? She was wearing this. She drank too much. God, God has no word for Bathsheba in all the scriptures. Find it. I'll wait. But he has a lot to say to David. Right? He's using his power against the image of God, but a sin against God himself. God is right to be angry. We don't like to think about an angry God, but sometimes it's right to be angry. When children are stolen, it's right to be angry. When people are lied against, though, it's also right to be angry. It's against God. So your sin primarily, first and foremost, is vertical, not horizontal. Then David says, uh, <clears throat> your sin, I need you to hear this, we need to recognize this, is innate, is natural. Right? It's not conditioned. Do you see, do you see what he says? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. How do we, how do you deal with that? I had the privilege of going to, um, and maybe this is why I'm so on this, I had the privilege with Melissa, my wife, of going to the State Department's report on uh, human trafficking around the world. Uh, and so Secretary Kerry gave a report on the state of the world and trafficking in the world. And what was remarkable was time after time, there were like over, t over 20 million people are still being trafficked, uh, most of them kids, uh, that we know of, that we guess. It's probably a lot more. Every day we find out new stories of them. And for every one that we find out and stop, there's 10 more that pop up. 
right? And then they say, but people are really good, right? Like, but I have faith in humanity. And, and I get what they're saying on a big level. They're saying, like, but there are more people now fighting this fight. But at the end of the day, like, the human capacity for evil and, and sin is so great that I think at some point you have to stop and say, maybe it's something more. Maybe it's something deeper. Maybe when David says that I was brought forth in iniquity, what he's saying is that even I, and we see this in David, a man after God's own heart, have the capacity for great wickedness when left to my own devices. And see, if you don't believe that about people in general, then you will certainly put yourself on the list of the generally good people, and you will deny that capacity. There's a singer, he's still around, I think he's coming to Wolf Trap, that uh, we, we used to listen to a lot named Sufjan Stevens, and he's got a song called John Wayne Gacy Jr. Now, some of you will know who John Wayne Gacy Jr. is. Uh, he, was a, he was the clown killer in, in, uh, in Chicago back in the day. I think he dressed up like a, yeah, he dressed up like a clown for that's actually in the song. Um, and, and so he abducted like children, like crazy stuff. And the last line of the song is, and on my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. Right? And that was the stories. They pulled up the floorboards and they found the evidence. And Sufyan is acknowledging that even at my best, there is something in me, something in me that needs to be weeded out. It's innate. I was born with it. I can't shake it, no matter how hard I try. If you, I'm almost doing us a disservice by talking about such like horrific things. But if we talk about lying or jealousy or, or greed, pride, Right? Then you begin to say, yeah, no, I wrestle with that every day. And I, I just can't shake it. And you don't realize how deep-seated and how deadly pride is. Pride will destroy your relationships. Pride will wreck countries. Greed will, will subjugate people. So you can't just say, oh, it's a little greed. David recognizes that it's inward, right? So first, it's upward, primarily, not outward, not vertical, not horizontal, then inward, not, not upon us, and then ultimately, it is internal. He says, but, but you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And so what David is saying is that the nature of sin is not just an action. And this is something we've failed to do as a church well. This is something that I feel like, well, I shouldn't say that so universally. I haven't been to every church. But in, in, in a lot of my experiences, we've given a list of sins. And we've given a law. And we've said if you do these things and you don't do these things, then you're good. You're a good Christian. Right? So, like... I grew up in Fairfax County, Virginia, like 20 years ago. And like, it, it's out there now, but it, it was even a little bit more like country back then, right? And so I went to this private Baptist school, and it's not a lie when I said that I heard our Bible teacher say multiple times, don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do, right? Law. If I don't do those things, then I'm good, right? If I don't go, if I don't cuss, if I don't go to R-rated movies, uh, that aren't about Jesus, 
dying on the cross, then I'm good, right? If I wake up and, and read my Bible, you know, for 30 minutes a day and pray for 15 and go to church on Sunday mornings and uh, preferably Sunday nights and youth group, right, and, and then do this thing on, Wednesday, on Saturday mornings, right, then I'm good. If I memorize enough verses, then I'm good. And all these things are external things. If I dress and look a certain way, then I'm good. And what David says is you're focusing on the outside, but what God desires is truth on the inward being. And the inward being, sin doesn't work from the outside in. So if you focus on the outside, you'll become a Pharisee every time. A whitewashed tomb. It's from the inside out. That's why he says God delights in truth in the inward being. So teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The nature of repentance, then, is also not external, right? Just because, and I see this a lot, right? Like, I was in college. I had guy college friends who were, like, in the Christian kind of circles then. And so if you were not a good Christian, if you didn't have an accountability partner and a group that you and your accountability partner were in. And man, oh, man, if week after week, we didn't hear the same ones of us, I'm not excluding myself from this, saying and confessing the same thing with big repentance words and, oh, I'm so, ah, uh, this, that, and the third, right? And there was no inward change. There was just this big show of repentance, and there was no change from the heart. And we have to realize that sin, repentance, begins inside. So if, and, and we're almost, we're actually almost done here. If these three things hold fast, if what David is saying about sin is true, that all of us are plagued by it, that it's primarily vertical, not horizontal, that it's primarily, uh, that it is natural, it is within us, right, and that it's inward, not outward primarily, even though it manifests itself outwardly, um, even though it's aided by outward, outside forces, uh, even though it is against other people, if those things are true, then what do we need? And I love what David prays. David doesn't, David's prayer is not, David's response is not, I need to r read a book on not murdering people. <laughs> now, I, for some of you, that may be ridiculous, but in some circles, uh, including the circle that, that, um, that I think this church tends to be in, in, in our tribe, if you want to call it that, that's kind of the, like, oh, man, my marriage is struggling. All right, here's a book on marriage, right? Like, okay, great, I read this book on marriage. Ten weeks later, my marriage is still struggling, right? Or, oh, man, I don't... I, my prayer life, I did this, I'm guilty as charged. In, this last, in the last calendar year, man, my prayer life is not vibrant and great and I don't pray as much as I should. So what did I do? I went on Amazon, I bought three books on prayer by people within my tribe, I read them. And you know what? Like three weeks later, I wasn't praying anyway. And I'm reading these like, oh, these are so great. Look at the insights that, that Tim Keller has for me on prayer, right? David doesn't pray like, hey, give me a new edition of this rabbi's teaching on, on the topic of adultery. 
He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Even prior to that, verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David says, if all of this is true, if my sin is horizontal or vertical, if my sin is inward and natural, then I cannot be the source of my redemption. My forgiveness must have a, a horizontal, it must be enacted on me. He prays, God, clean me, wash me with water. What's interesting is David says, what I need is not a new set of rules. What I need is not a new law, it's a new life. Right? God, have mercy on me as your pastor. If week in and week out, I just pray a new set of rules that will make you better instead of leading you to the source of new life. David says, I need new life. And what's really interesting about this is that David realizes, and we're, we're going we're gonna to walk into the gospel here because that's, it's all pointing to Jesus. David realizes this. If these things are true about us, then what we need is new life, a new heart. And so he prays, wash me. Wash me so that I may be clean and give me a new heart. Created me a new heart. He doesn't say renew my mind. Paul says renew my mind. And we need our minds renewed. That is a product of a new heart. David says created me a clean heart. Give me a new heart. Wash me. Wash me. And you know what? God does. In this psalm, David rejoices that God is doing it. But God realizes this about all of us. About all of his people. And so he makes this crazy promise. Right? It's, it's interesting that David says, wash me and give me a new heart. Because in Ezekiel 36, when God is promising what he's going to do for his people, listen to what he says. He says, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Listen, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I'll wash you. And you will be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. How? How? I will, a new spirit, I will put in you. My spirit. I added the my spirit, but that's what he's saying. <clears throat> and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And that will cause you to walk in my statutes. What he doesn't say is I will give you a new copy of the law so that you can walk in my statutes. He says I'll wash you clean and I'll give you a new heart. I'll wash you with water and I'll give you a new heart. Then all of a sudden, a new spirit is added. God says I'll do you one better, David. And he does say restore to me. Uh, take not your Holy Spirit from me, right? Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. But God says, I will give you a new heart. I will wash you with water. I will give you a new spirit. And listen to this. Listen to this. One of the texts that we talk about a lot but never bring back to his context is John chapter 3. Right? My daughter's learning John 3.16. And a lot of us know John 3.16. But 1 through 15, we kind of know what the story is about but we don't really know the fullness of its context. And in John 3, a man named Nicodemus, who was a teacher of the peoples, 
He's a member of the Sanhedrin, which means he's an educated religious person. He's not an idiot. He's talking to Jesus, and Jesus, he says to Jesus, we've been watching you, and we see the things we do, and we know that no one can do them unless God has sent them. And he's condescending to Jesus. He's standing as judge over Jesus. Jesus flips the table. That's not really what we need to talk about. But what he says to them is he says, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, what? Born again? That's, that's silly. Now, remember, Nicodemus is not an idiot. So then he knows that Jesus is using a figure of speech. He knows Jesus isn't really saying, how can some be born? in your mom and be born again. And so he's, he's, scoffing, he's scoffing at Jesus right now. What he realizes is what Jesus is saying. If anyone wants to see the kingdom of heaven, they have to be made new. You have to become completely new. You need a new life. You need a new life. And Nicodemus says it's impossible. You can't start over. You can't have a new life. And Jesus says, you're supposed to be a teacher of the people. Don't you realize what the scriptures say? Unless one is born of water and born of spirit, then he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And we try and figure out a lot. We, what does it mean to be born of water? It must be baptism. No, Jesus is, is actually going back to Ezekiel 36 here. He's not bringing a new concept in. Because he says, Nicodemus, you should know this. He's bringing back an old concept. He's saying, don't you remember the promises of God? I will wash you clean with water. I will give you a new spirit. You're born of water. You're born of spirit. You enter the kingdom of heaven. You're made new. This forgiveness is available to you. So when we pray, God, forgive me, we are, what Jesus is saying is we are crying out Psalm 51 with the promise of Ezekiel 36 found in Jesus. In John 3, and Jesus says, you can be made new. And Nicodemus now realizes, okay, Jesus, this is something good. And his tone changes from kind of haughty to broken. And he says, how can this be? How, how can this be? And this is where we will end with one last story. Jesus says, instead of saying, do these things, he tells him, this. He says, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And Nicodemus, who is a biblical scholar, knows the story of the Israelites doubting God, complaining, griping in the woods. And God sends serpents, right, to bite them. <laughs> so all these people are bit by poisonous snakes, and they're writhing on the ground, and they're saying, Moses, Tell God to save us. And so Moses talks to God, and rather than saying, like, wave your hands and save them, and he says, uh, put a bronze serpent on a stick and stick it in the ground and tell everybody to look at the serpent. And Moses does it, right? Me, I'd have been like, you sure about, like, a, a, a bronze just on a stick? And a, okay, fine. So Moses crafts the serpent, nails it to a stick, sticks it in the ground, says, look at it and you will be healed. And they look at it and they're healed. I don't know how you nail bronze. <laughs> but that's the point. He makes it, he does it, they're healed. And what's interesting is that what God says is, look at the form of your curse destroyed. And you'll be healed. And Jesus says in the same way that Moses lifted up that serpent, 
so the Son of Man, that's his favorite way of talking about himself, will be lifted up. He who knew no sin will become sin, will take the form of your curse like that serpent. He'll be lifted up on the cross. And if you will look at him in faith, if you will believe, then you will be made new. That offer is for all of us. And as Christians, we need to remember it just as much as if you're in here and you don't believe. The Son of Man was lifted up. He was made a curse for you so that you might be made new, so that you might have forgiveness. This is the good news of the gospel. And it only comes as we can, in honesty, look at our sin and say, God, have mercy. So will we be a church that is honest? We'll be a church seeking the mercy of God and then showing that mercy to others. Let's pray.